News Power Hour. Tuesday, the 2nd of November, a warm welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where tonight we're going to be talking a little about the election, yesterday's election, some dramatic results that are coming through, uh, and some big changes in the offing there. We'll also have episode one of Falun versus Haystack, or local versus offshore. They've been given half a million rands each by a business community member and told to do their best for him over the next five years. We'll be picking up on that story in a little while. Also tonight, we'll be hearing more from the highly innovative Standard Bank Power Pulse. This is a uh, platform online where those who want to invest in solar energy, and it's not just companies, it's also households, can go online and pick up a good supplier, a supplier that's got the rubber stamp of Standard Bank, and as a consequence, be a lot easier to fund or to finance it through the bank. Nadia, were you out there voting yesterday? Yes, I was. I guess in Cape Town, and you, all three of you are in Cape Town, it's, it's a bit boring because Cape Town is, is kind of a one-horse race and nobody goes to the races to see just one horse running. Yeah, but in this sense, I mean, you know, to actually like have it be boring, it's, it's relieving. We're lucky that it's boring. Well, at the moment, more than a third of the votes have been counted. We're heading up towards 40% of the votes now. The Democratic Alliance has got 62% of the vote in Cape Town, almost a two-thirds majority. Uh, Certainly, if they were to bring in those who would support them, uh, then you could get the Democratic Alliance to that two-third majority. Of course, they don't have any constitutions to change, but that is very, very interesting. With the ANC down at 14%. And next up is the Cape Coloured Congress that under 5% and the good party of Patricia DeLille under just around about 4%. The EFF don't feature in the Cape at all. They're at 3% and the Freedom Front as a 2%, well, not quite 2%. So it's it's a different part of the world. And I suppose what I've been watching, uh, Jared, is the Cape Independence Party because there's been a lot of uh, coverage uh, about their intentions. But they aren't featuring that well, I'm afraid. They were hoping for 5%. They've got half a percent. So they're tenfold uh, away from from the intention. Do you think that this is just showing exactly that people in the Cape are not really that keen on independence? Well, it would be quite interesting to see because, I mean, leading up to the elections, there was a lot of talk that there were a lot of people in the Western Cape that were very for this. So the results will prove to be interesting. They will indeed. Uh, Justin, you used to be up here in Johannesburg. You've seen the potholes and you've seen the, the chaos and the, uh, the cater deployment, what that's done to us. The good news up here is that that might be at an end. The African National Congress is down to one third of the vote, which is a terrible hiding for it. Uh, if you were to look at the Democratic Alliance and Action SA together at a 41%, and then you add in the Freedom Front, that takes you to 43%. And a few other little parties, they can get to 50%. You could get a, a proper change in government without the support of the EFF, which I know many voters in, in this city have been a bit worried about. No, agreed, Alec. Having lived half the year in Johannesburg and half the year in Cape Town, you can understand why the people of Cape Town continue to vote for the DA. Everything is uh, prim and proper. There's no hot uh, potholes on the road. And um, the CBD is is relatively tidy and clean, whereas you go to Joburg and it's completely the opposite. It's it's obviously good signs in terms of the election results there, but going to keep a close eye on Joburg and then also what's happening in the capital, Pretoria. Indeed, Chwane is a real turn up for the books there. That's where you hail from originally, Nadia. The DA is sitting at over forty percent of the vote, and the ANC around a quarter, twenty seven quarter, twenty eight percent, and the Freyheids Front plus. All right, it's early days with only a third of the vote counted, but they're at 11 ahead of the free, uh, Economic Freedom Fighters at nine. So they're an action SA at seven. So they're a, uh, a, another coalition is on the cards, uh, which would give the DA a very strong position. So is it just in terms of coalition politics, say all the votes are now counted, would the DA and, the, and action SA be able to form a coalition after the fact and by virtue of their collective percentage, then run the area. 
That's exactly how it works. So what will occur, or theoretically anyway, what will occur is that you will get a like-minded parties coming together to get 50%. If you get 50%, if you have 50% of the votes, it's a little bit like in a company. If you've got 50% of the shareholders who are voting, then you make the rules. Uh, In a country, you make the rules as well. So at the moment, the ANC has got over 50% of the seats in parliament. So when it comes to a vote, they get 50, uh, they, they can swing it always in their way. The DA is uh, only in the twenties in parliament. Uh, so it has to find a, a, a coalition partners to participate with it in getting to that 50%. And what's happened in South Africa for the last quarter century has been a dominant ANC. And as a result, They never were in a situation where they had to worry too much about what they did. So we had corruption, we had cater deployment, we had the ANC policies being applied. Now, certainly in the cities, that isn't the case anymore. And you can see what, uh, when we were talking to Action SA's uh, founder, Herman Mashaba, he was saying he knows exactly who the guys are who sabotaged him when he was last the mayor there. And he knows who to kick out when he moves in uh, he thinks to the mayor's office. I don't think he's going to get into the mayor's office, or he might. He might still. We never never know. There's still a lot of votes to be counted, but he certainly is uh, is very likely to be part of the ruling alliance, and he'll be able to then uh, point out the the problem people, the troublemakers, those who've been drawing salaries and and not making a contribution. As a as an almost lifelong Joburg, I came here from KwaZulu Natal as a well, I wasn't even twenty years old. Uh, it's it's one of the most heartening days for me to see that we might be getting governance for the first time, really accountable governance, a little bit like uh, what has happened in Cape Town is very, very possibly going to happen in Johannesburg and in Chwani. So it's it's extremely uplifting. Anyway, we'll have more on the, well, there is more on the municipal elections on Biz News. We are updating the votes as they come through. So you can go along there and see what, uh, what our conversations have and commentary is about it. Uh, but it does look distinctly uh, likely that the ANC is going to lose all of the big metros. Still got a chance in Nelson Mandela Bay, perhaps, of uh, pulling that in. And, of course, uh, Tekweni, it's just over 50% of the vote at the moment. Uh, but there's still a lot of votes to be counted. So we can't count any chickens. However, uh, before we go into the rest of the uh, of the normal lineup in our introduction. Jared, uh, just tell us what uh, business community have been reading, watching, and listening to. So on our website, business.com, election 2021, opposition parties off to a flying start, Bernard Mostert on Steinoff, and a column by contributor Simon Lincoln Reader, Wokeness on a Nando's Platter, are among the best read articles. On Business TV, on YouTube, Pete Fillion says no to Black Label, but yes to AB InBev. Tiggy Town's Bernard Moster discusses the latest development in the Steinhoff saga, and the most recent flash briefing are among the most popular videos with our viewers. And then finally on Business Radio on Spotify, from the USA to Poland, global small cap opportunities, Stefan Van Koller on EOH as Turnaround Nears Completion, and Thursday's Power Hour were the most listened to podcasts. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. And here's the headlines with our Nadia Swatch. South African motorists will be hit with record high fuel prices from Wednesday with petrol prices increasing one rand 21 cents and diesel prices shooting up by one rand 48. This puts the inland petrol price over 19 rand 50, pushing towards the 20 rand mark. Economists and analysts have warned that the petrol price will push over 20 rand by the end of the year. The increase is due to rising global oil prices, which have soared this year as economies recover from the pandemic. The weaker rand has also made it more expensive to import petro- petroleum products and adjustments to the slate levy have also added to the pain. 
South African pension funds will be banned in no uncertain terms from investing in Bitcoin or its sibling cryptocurrencies under new draft rules. On Friday, Finance Minister Enoch Gorongwana set 12 November as the public comment deadline for his proposal, making it possible for the changes to be brought into force before the end of the year. It had previously been thought possible for pension funds to put up to 2.5% of their assets into cryptocurrencies under rules allowing for a broad category of other assets to form part of their strategies. The new draft rules published in the Government Gazette provide that a pension fund may not invest in crypto assets directly or indirectly, and that specifically includes via the other assets allowance. And with over a third of votes counted, the ANC remains well below 50% of the national vote in the 2021 local elections and of the major metros is only above this critical level in Etiquini. The Democratic Alliance is comfortably ahead in Cape Town and leads the field with over 40% in Tuane. All the other major metros are very closely contested. Herman Mashaba's Action SA is launching a serious challenge to the big three in the major Gauteng metros, with its strongest showing in Joburg, where current numbers suggest that a successful alliance with the DEA and smaller parties, excluding the EFF, would be enough to achieve control. For regular updates on the 2021 local elections, visit biznews.com. And now it's over to my colleague Justin for the market report. The JSE All Share Index was up at 66,800. In the currency markets, the rand is weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 43 cents to the dollar, 21 rand and 8 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 91 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,791 an ounce. Kruger Rand will put you back around 29,000 Rand. Brent crude is trading at $85.40 a barrel. And in the financial news, JSC and NASDAQ listed payment solutions provider NetUps Technologies announced on Tuesday that it signed an agreement to acquire 100% of fintech company, the Connect Group, for approximately 3.7 billion Rand. NetOne said in a statement that the acquisition of the Connect Group, a profitable, high growth, and leading South African fintech company, is transformational for the business and its journey to becoming South Africa's leading fintech platform. The deal is subject to regulatory approval and satisfactory meeting closing conditions. Chris Mayer, Group CEO of NetOne, said the acquisition will transform its small, micro and medium enterprises footprint, as well as its growth strategy as a company. Tesla CEO Elon Musk said on Monday night that his electric vehicle company has yet to sign a contract with rental car company Hertz. The tweet from Musk seemingly contradicted a prior announcement advertisement released by Hertz on 25 October. Famously, Tesla hit a $1 trillion market cap for the first time a week ago after Hertz announced it would grow its fleet of battery electric vehicles with an initial order of 100,000 Teslas by the end of 2022. A commercial featuring seven-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady alongside parked Tesla Model 3 electric sedans in a Hertz garage accompanied the announcement. This daily market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Tuesday, November 2nd, and this is your FT News Briefing. Barclays Chief Executive Jess Staley is the latest high-profile figure to fall because of his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. And the big UN climate conference in Glasgow is underway. We'll give you a taste of what's been happening there. Plus, Apple this year started letting users choose if they wanted to be tracked by advertisers. A lot of people opted out, and so a lot of tech companies have been hit. It suggests that the digital advertising market has been based on practices that actually people don't like. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Do we want? When do we want it? When do we want? When do we want it? Protesters were on the streets of Glasgow yesterday as world leaders delivered speeches at the UN Climate Conference, or COP26. Welcome to COP. Welcome to Glasgow. Et de bâtir un accord qui n'était pas construit au début de la, de la COP. Wir werden mit staatlichen Aktivitäten alleine nicht vorankommen. We know that none of us can escape the worst that's yet to come if we fail to seize this moment. Also in Glasgow is our climate reporter Camilla Hodson. She was inside the conference center where the formal events are being held. 
it's a little like a circus. It's very, very busy. There are thousands of people here. Um, there were people were queuing for about an hour just to get to the security checkpoint. So that all took a bit of time. Meanwhile, outside in Glasgow, it was blowing a gale. Perhaps the Glaswegians wouldn't be as dramatic about it. Um, but it felt quite cold to me. So Camilla, as our colleague Leslie Hook told me yesterday, this is a huge diplomatic event. And it seemed like every major world leader was there. You know, we played some moments from a few speeches earlier. Did any of the remarks from high profile speakers stand out to you? This isn't a world leader, but Sir David Attenborough, the broadcaster, delivered a very powerful speech during the opening ceremony. He talked about humanity being the smartest species to ever have lived on the earth. And and it was quite a nice counterpoint to what had been until then a series of quite downcast speeches, people saying we are not where we need to be, we need to step up our game. Mr. Anra obviously made that point as well, but it, it was a little more heartening to hear him talk about where we can find hope and the fact that humanity isn't necessarily doomed. Thanks, Camilla. That's our climate reporter, Camilla Hodson in Glasgow for the COP26 climate conference. Barclays chief executive, Jess Staley, was planning to attend the climate conference in Glasgow. He didn't make it, though, because he was forced to step down from his job. It was a shocking departure and it blindsided the bank. And it follows an investigation by British financial regulators into the way Staley described his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. That's the late disgraced financier and sex offender. Here's the FT's banking editor, Stephen Morris. Staley knows him because he was his personal private banker at JP Morgan back in the early 2000s. Staley took over Barclays in 2015 um, in the UK. And several years later, it came to light and regulators took a look again at their relationship and specifically how Jess Staley had described the relationship both to the board of Barclays and British regulators. And although we haven't seen the full report, we can at least infer today that regulators concluded Jess Daly had not been completely honest or had mischaracterized his relationship with Epstein to such an extent that he has felt that he's had to step down. Now, this is obviously shocking for yet another Barclays CEO to have to step down in scandal, the second one in 10 years now. But until the full picture comes out, we don't know exactly what Staley is alleged to have mischaracterized that went on between the two men. Stephen, what do you know about the man Barclays has tapped to replace Staley? Uh, his name is C.S. Venkatakrishnan. Venkat, as he's known, is a longtime lieutenant of, of Jess Staley. They worked together at J.P. Morgan, and he was one of the first people that Jess Staley tapped up to leave J.P. Morgan and join him in London at Barclays. Uh, he's a risk officer by trade. It's hoped that he will bring a more safer pair of hands to the bank. Jess Staley's a bit more of a swashbuckling character. Um, Venkat, I've met him a few times. He's a very nice guy. He's, he's very considered and he has the full backing of the board. Apparently they said that he's been their number one pick for a few years, but still, um, he's been catapulted into the limelight possibly a year or two before anticipated and, of course, in incredibly difficult circumstances. So his main aim will be repairing relations with regulators, talking to investors and calming them down and then seeing what he can bring to the bank. He's already taken the opportunity to say how disappointed he is his boss and his mentor has left. So he's not distancing himself from his predecessor. But as we say, he's shunned the limelight until this period. So really, he's a bit of a blank sheet of paper. Stephen Morris is the FT's banking editor. Okay, so we know Apple is a powerful company, but its decision earlier this year to allow users to opt out of tracking showed how much power Apple has over other tech companies. Many apps were simply walloped by Apple's move. To talk more about this, I'm joined by our chief business commentator, Brooke Masters. Hey, Brooke. Hey, Mark. So, Brooke, how badly has Apple's change to its privacy policy hit other tech companies like Snapchat? I'm, I'm mentioning Snap because it recently announced earnings and its share price absolutely plummeted after it mentioned Apple's privacy policy. Well, what Snap said is 
without being able to follow people around the internet, their advertising is much less targeted. So it's much less attractive to people who want to buy advertising. And it has wiped projected ad sales out for companies that do this. Patrick McGee, who works at the FT as well, did a really interesting calculation and found that it's almost $10 billion in projected ad sales that just vanished because people stopped spending money on it because the ads aren't as good. Wow. I mean, that is just astonishing. Um, how do companies plan to respond to this? Well, they are finding different ways to target users. If they can't follow them around the internet, they can do other things. Twitter, which was affected, but said the effects were only modest. What they're doing, instead of saying, you know, you, Mark, went and looked at, you know, the Boston Red Sox site, and therefore we will offer you advertising about Boston or about baseball. Instead, what they say to advertisers is, if you want to advertise about Boston, buy ads on the topic Boston. So when somebody tweets about Boston, then they get an ad about it, which is much less intrusive. That's not following you around. That's, you know, you put yourself on Twitter saying, I'm interested in Boston, and Twitter is serving you up an ad that matches. Right. I've actually seen those, not for the Red Sox, though, for the Mets. Apologies. I'm a Mets fan as well, and that's insulting to say that you would root for the Red Sox. (laughs) It's all right. Don't worry about it. Um, Have any companies been able to dodge the worst of Apple's privacy policy? Well, Google, which has a different way of collecting information on you, is doing fine. Basically, Google has a first party relationship with you because when you go to Google and search for something, they know you're searching. So they don't need to track you around the Internet. They already have you on Google. And so they have been just fine in their ad sales. So while we're talking about all these companies that have been negatively affected by Apple's privacy policy, you know, how has Apple fared? Well, you see, Apple, like Google, has direct information about you. It doesn't need to follow you around the internet. You're on its phone. And so its advertising, which is a relatively small part of its revenue, but one of the highest margin parts and one of the fastest growing parts is doing great. It's up 40% this year. What does this all tell us about the digital advertising market's method of raising revenue? Is it flawed? I would say it suggests that the digital advertising market has been based on practices that actually people don't like. If people were happy to be tracked all around the internet, the fact that Apple has asked them to say, please allow, wouldn't matter because we would all be fine saying, oh, yes, I'm really happy for Facebook to ride around and see everything I do. But the reality is most digital advertising is sold in a way that people really don't like once they know about it. And so I think it will require everyone to rethink I personally think we actually need some common standards. So it's not just Apple saying you can't do this, but actually that there are privacy rules that say you can't do this. In Europe now, because of GDPR, which is their 2018 data privacy regulation, when you click on a website, the first time you get there, it always asks, are you happy for us to track you? Because they have to do that now. And that's not Apple being nice or Apple caring about its customers. That's like the law. And that matters. And that's something that regulators or, you know, maybe even Congress could do here in the U.S.? Absolutely. And actually, California is moving this way and thinking about it. Unfortunately, Congress has gotten very hung up on partisan debates when it comes to the Internet because Republicans and Democrats have different things they don't like and haven't moved forward as fast as I think many people wish they would. Brooke Masters is our chief business commentator. Thanks, Brooke. Thanks for having me. One more thing before we go. You know how when you get older, your memory starts to get a little foggy? That totally happened to us last month. The FT News briefing turned three years old on October 15th, and it completely slipped our minds. Now, it's okay if you didn't get us a birthday present. You tuning in every day is enough of a gift. But if you want to give us a little something, you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your app of choice. It helps other listeners find the show. So thank you again for your support. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. 
it can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. The full results of the local government election should be out by tonight. But to give us an indication so far of what the results that have come out mean, we have Dr. Ralph Mateka. He is a political analyst. So what is your interpretation of what's been happening? I feel that the first uh, indicator of what's happening is the turnout, which is uh, uh, coming out to be quite weak. I mean, I live in Johannesburg. I was driving around in the area. Uh, even if uh, suburban areas have had quite a good turnout, generally it looks a little bit empty. It has to do with many other issues uh, uh, but I think that the turnout seems to be one of the main big issue here. It's a question as to how the turnout will be distributed across parties. Uh, mostly poor lower turnout tend to hurt the main dominant parties. And if uh, other op- opposition parties can get the maximum turnout, even if it can still be relatively low turnout, it will certainly hurt the bigger party. So it seems to be that the NC is already struggling uh, along those lines. And as for the DA, a small growth on the margins, a small decline on the margins. That That's their best-case scenario in these elections. Where they grow uh, significantly, it should be a bonus. The EFF is expected, as I'm seeing it and I've seen it, it seems to be quite growing on the margin in certain areas. But not to a point of overwhelmingly taking over councils, but certainly consolidating uh, as a party. You said you're in Johannesburg. That's the big one to watch. Who's going to do well there? I mean, Johannesburg is going to be very difficult. It is where the concentration of problems are for the ANC. I don't see the ANC coming back Johannesburg strongly. I see Mashawa uh, taking a few seats here and there. I don't think that uh, the ANC will be able to consolidate in Johannesburg because it will be almost like going against the law of gravity. There will be no explanation whatsoever for any growth of the ANC in Johannesburg. As for the DA, is neither here nor there. I think they are worried a lot about Mashava in Johannesburg, and they should be. So who do you think is going to be the mayor? It will have to be a coalition. That's it what is I, going to have yep. to be a coalition. There's no other way. It is going to be a coalition. The question will be, will it have too many partners or not, and who will be the, the, the main driver of this coalition? The point is that with the NC's electoral decline underway, it means that the NC is nearly at the same position as the DA when it comes to crafting coalition. It means that the NC no longer has an upper hand in terms of that big number. Because if you have got a bigger number, you can easily shop for coalition from smaller parties. But if your numbers are declining, you really need serious partners for coalition. It will engage you in much longer discussions. And I think that seems to be what the NC is facing, getting to a position where they could get a coalition, they might not get it, and being placed in the position of the DA. For the DA is quite good because it means that the DA indeed it's it becoming a party to reckon with in, in, in those metros. But for the ANC it, ANC, it actually means they're having less and less of a say in government. So how can we extrapolate what we've been saying or the results that have come out on what the national picture would look like going forward for the ANC well, and other parties? I think that, the, you see, when it comes to local government election, if you focus a lot on the national picture, you're not getting the the, the, the actual what's happening because mm-hmm. you need to understand and take into consideration the distribution of the losses. That even if the NC can lose in uh, your metros in Johannesburg, they will still remain relatively stable in certain areas, in, in most of the municipalities in rural areas. There's no doubt about that, in my view. And then when you start to tally it, looking at the density in urban areas compared to those rural areas, you end up with a picture that says the NC is below. This percent, but if you start looking at the actual number of municipalities run by the NC, they are quite higher number than others. So we need to be very careful. Local government requires further disaggregation of those municipalities to understand the distribution of gains and the distribution of losses across metros versus your local municipalities. So who do you think is going to be the kingmakers? So if opposition parties or all these smaller parties could be kingmakers, who are the ones that you're singling out? Yeah, this is where the problem is actually. When you have the majority party losing more votes and you have the majority party, the one's dominant party, almost in a position of the opposition parties, it actually means that you have no kingmakers in this election actually. You just have multiple opposition parties that can easily exchange and 
and craft. Remember, if the ANC and the DA are closer to forming a coalition, it means they will be shopping even in the same place, but not necessarily in one party, in one direction. They'll be shopping across different parties. So you have the main dominant parties becoming weakened. It means they need more players in the coalition. It means you actually have multiple kingmakers. All oppositions count now. Sure. That's going to be interesting. So in, if we look at Johannesburg, um, which parties do you think might get together? I mean, we need to start with the mathematics of it. That's where we start with, uh, we shouldn't start with our hope or anything. And the mathematics of it tells you that the ANC will most likely get the higher number. Mathematically, it means it is the party that is quite well positioned to form a coalition. And if you look at their relationship with the EFF, they can move in that direction. The EFF can work with the NC without the EFF incurring liability. They have done it. But for the DA, it becomes a difficult. Which side are you going to look for coalition in Johannesburg? Are you going to look in Mashaba's direction? But Mashaba does not want to be swallowed back into the DA. It makes it difficult for him to work with the DA. Therefore, it means that the DA could end up being one of the most isolated parties with a higher number but yet unable to craft a coalition. It's complex. That's what I'm trying to say. So, so coalitions are coming, but it's very hard to predict who's going to go for who. It's very hard. With with the votes being being distributed across parties the way in which they are, with no single strong party, it tells you that everybody has a shot at a coalition. Then you then have more probabilities playing a role in what will constitute a coalition. So, um, Ralph, what do you ascribe the low voter turnout to? Many issues. It has got to do with the COVID. It has got to do with the mere fact that parties had only six weeks. They are dealing with unfamiliar campaign finance regime with the disclosure of finance. So if you look for a single factor, I don't think it's going to work. There are many issues. And the mere fact of the pandemic itself, people have got attitude towards gatherings. That's a fact. Add to that the existing issue relating to local government, the general disaffection. So these elections were at the most unfavorable conditions possible, you can imagine. Yeah. Do you have indications of what the voter turnout is going to be? No, I don't have that. The IC should be able to provide that today, actually, because I'm surprised that they don't have it. That should be easy to tally. I wonder why they're holding back on that, because that's very, very critical information. I mean, you can easily know the voter turnout within split second if you are sitting within the IC system. Probably will get that number. I have no number on my mind. But certainly it looks like people are worried. There were some problems with um, voting boxes being stuffed, Helen Zilli being removed from, from a voting station. How did the IEC come out of this, according to you? It's been tough for the IEC. I mean, the IEC has had to be told by the court that it should go ahead with the elections, while it expected the opposite, a postponement. So it's been tough from the get-go. Unprecedented elections indeed, but I think they held high, they held well. Those issues you are pointing out are quite unfortunate. Do they color the broader election? No. I think parties were almost all equitably unfavored by the circumstances. So you don't think that the image of the ISE is tarnished because at some stage they were in for a bit of stick? The image is, is, is not necessarily tarnished. It takes a while. It cannot take one election. I don't think... I think people also need to understand the conditions that the IC was working. I mean, all of us, including myself, I mean, I was against the postponement of the elections, but I expected it to be postponed because I thought it was a reasonable thing. So the IC organizing the election under the pandemic, I don't really think it should get us to a point where we cross the line of the IC. I think it has to, it will be under close watch because of these elections. I think there will be much, much more intense look at the IC's processes in the next elections. And uh, this is just how democracy also goes as well. But generally, do we have credibility problems with with these elections? Not as far as I'm concerned. And um, how do you feel about democracy after this? The fact that South Africans didn't come out to vote in droves, but apart from the problems, do you think this might change in the next election? It's a concern when people don't show up. It actually shows that... Uh, a nation that has had such a high turnout certainly tend to be skeptical about the ability of democratic processes to bring about changes in their lives. And I think this is an indictment on democratic processes. And I think this is quite a problem. I, I've battled with the problem myself, but I think we are not, we need to take seriously how much of the poor performance of government is a greater risk to democracy. 
beyond a party, a greater risk to democracy and how people relate to democracy. We are almost at that point. And, and again, Linda, you cannot give people three bad choices and compare them to go out there and exercise their choice. If they've got, if they think the choices that are there will not lead to anything, they've got the right not to vote. Yeah. Then that, that is raising legitimacy questions about the system. Well, it's time for the local versus offshore, which is lacquer challenge. And uh, Magnus Haystick and Pitt Willian have stepped up to the plate to participate in this. Just by way of background, a business community member said he's tired of hearing Magnus saying that offshore is better and Pitt saying that local is lacquer. And he actually wants to put the two of you to the test. Magnus, uh, I know you've stepped up uh, to, to agree to do this. What motivated you? Uh, I think you had one of these challenges once before, if I recall, uh, when you were still the financial editor at the Star. That that was years ago. Hello, Alec and hello, Pete. That was years ago when we we did a comparison between unit trusts and endowment policies. You might recall endowment policies were the rage years, years ago. And I said, no, cost structure is against it. And so this is a comeback fight for me. I mean, after many years, you know, I've been training and I'm in good shape and and I'm up against Pete, who's, 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 who's had a cracking three to five years in the market. So I better know my stuff. I better know my stuff. And it's, uh, you know, of course, it is. This is real money. That that client who wants to remain anonymous, he said he's putting up his own money. I think it's uh, 500000 a pop. And he says, play with real money and, and, and stop the talking and let's see what you got. And uh, uh, it's going to be quite fascinating. So I hope. I hope our audience will learn from it because it's a learning experience for both of us and for the audience, how the markets fluctuate and what dominates, what doesn't dominate and the various factors influencing decision-making processes. Peter, it's a smart call by our community member because he's giving a very public challenge to the two of you, but presumably he's, well, he's going to have the benefit of all of us watching how those portfolios perform, uh, isn't there a risk, though, uh, from your perspective, that it, you know, if, if offshore beats you here? So, so there is that risk, there, and and I think it's it's quite possible. Um, you know, I'm I'm not saying uh, one should be naive and have all your money in South Africa because such good value and returns are so prospective returns are high. I think. How a sensible investor should position their portfolios is whatever you think your natural exposure to South Africa should be, whether that's naught or five percent or fifty percent, you should have slightly more than whatever that natural exposure is right now because of the value on offer out there. So if your natural exposure to Africa is naught, have some, have five or ten percent exposure. Uh, I think that's sensible. Um, and if your natural exposure is 20, have 30 percent exposure. Um, you know, so it's just right now, given the valuations of really good business in South Africa on the South African market, on the JSE, the prospect of returns, despite historic returns being quite high, the prospect of returns are still quite high uh, because these companies have not really re-rated very much at all. Peter, uh, do you think the period is uh, suitable? Uh, the period that you've been given to compare the two? Yeah, I, I think the window of opportunity for South African stocks is the next three to five years. Um, I don't think you want to be in them forever. There will, there will come a time when you want to be out of them. In other words, if your natural exposure is 10%, you'd probably want uh, to be less than that. The, that time will come. Uh, but I think over the next one, three, five years, um, until that happens, I think uh, some exposure to African assets, cheap value South African assets, uh, is definitely warranted. So we do want to keep this updated. Uh, Magnus, what's a good period? When should we be revisiting the, the local versus offshore uh, performance? One, uh, one month, three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, only every year? I think, you know, we need to chat every six months and just have an update and say, how's it going? You know, you know, one month, three months is, is a waste of time. I mean, even six months is a waste of time, but, you know, otherwise people will forget about the competition, and I think you want to attract people. But, you know, the point that Pete is making is, is absolutely right. It's not a 
it's not an either-or situation for, for most South Africans. Most South Africans still will have a, a South African ex exposure, even myself and even my clients will have it. And I want to make sure that if I do have a South African exposure, I'm in the hands of a fund that can stock pick and select and, and, and outperform the market, which Peter has been doing quite dramatically over the last three to five years. And we're very happy to support you. And that's the, that's the irony of this. We are supporting Pete's fund and he's, he's keeping our clients very, very happy. But we also have money offshore. There are so many variables in the investment game to, to, to confidently say, you know, local is going to beat offshore. Uh, offshore is going to be local. It's a foolish statement to make. And, and, and you've got to see it in a, a greater context of your global asset allocation, your objectives and time horizons, all those factors. And that's why I like doing this. Hopefully, it will educate people to, to think about investment and the process that goes into making an investment decision, whether it's for the individual or whether it's for a larger group of people. And I think that's what's lacking in, in our debate in South Africa, which, which has become fairly acrimonious in certain instances. You know, we get local fund managers getting up and using one-year return figures and as if that that is the reality and they forget about the last five years and and vice versa so it's a good time to have it and as they say may the best man win so it's a five-year game uh, or five-year competition it's real money that's there uh it's we're going to go back every six months and uh, and have this conversation again are you able at this stage pit to tell us where you're going to be putting uh, our community members half a million rand yeah, it's going into the Counterpoint Value Fund, South Africa Value Fund. Uh, so it's a fund that is invested 100% in South African domiciled business or listed business, South African listed business, um, and very much uh, picked on a value basis. So we pick the cheapest stocks we can find. So it's 100%. The whole half a million rand is going in there. You're not going to take a bit of crypto on the side or uh, perhaps no, something no. else that might give you a no. sweetener? No, uh, I'm not. No, no, I'm not looking for sweeteners or something on the side. My own money is in the value fund. I don't have any assets, any stocks outside of the value fund. Um, all my own personal money is invested in the funds that I manage, um, without any outside, uh, without any outside. Uh, what, what's the term used? Uh, <laughs> sweeteners. Sweeteners. No, no, no mm. outside sweeteners. <laughs> and, and Pete, just to to uh, let everybody who's watching this feel a little bit more comfortable or more informed, what are the major stocks in the Counterpoint South African Value Fund? Yeah, so so the top ten holdings, um, the the top holding is MTN, um, Discovery is one of them, uh, Sunlum is one of them, APSA, Medbank, uh, Anglo American, Exaro. Um, so it's a broad mix of commodity stocks, of financial stocks, of industrial stocks. Um, uh, and the, the common denominator is that they're all trading well below what we believe the intrinsic value to be. The market price is well below the intrinsic value. I think the biggest exposure to the stock, you know, if one looks at the top 10, it's all large cap um, type companies. Um, but the fund is very overweight small caps. So if you look at it on a market cap basis, I think the Orsha index has 80% of it is, is large cap. Um, we're sitting at 60 or 55% large cap in the fund and 45% small to mid cap. And that's only 15 to 20% of the Orsha index. So the fund is able to significantly get involved with some of the smaller situations in Africa. And those, that's where the neglected value is in the market. Um, as people withdraw their money from the market and move offshore, those things just get sold. And as the market, uh, as the flows concentrate into the larger fund managers, they don't care about the small stocks, so they never buy them. The indices don't care about them. They never buy them. Uh, so it's a neglected, ignored part of the market, and that is that leaves uh, investors who are willing to trawl through that part of the market with very rich pickings. And the returns that the counterpoint value fund has generated over the past five years is testament to that fact. Uh, that's where you'd find the Avenge, the Lewis, um, exactly, yeah. Companies like that, yeah. you told us exactly, about. yeah, yeah, hundred percent, yeah. The, the sort of the twigs, uh, as I call them. Um, so I, I see the composition of the fund as a bundle of twigs. Each individual one, like a Venge or a Lewis or a Rebosis A or whatever, um, Sendus Health, 
uh, each one of those is a twig, it might break very easily, it might be worth naught, but if you bundle them all together in a portfolio, you come up with a quite a robust situation. Uh, and that's what the counterpoint value fund is, a bundle of twigs. And how often are you going to change that portfolio in the next five years? The turnover in the portfolio is quite low. Um, of course, if prices change dramatically of the assets, then the fund will change. But the fund, I'm not going to change the fund just because it feels good to change the fund. Um, the fund responds to market prices relative to the intrinsic value of the businesses. Uh, so if those change in a dramatic way, the exposure to the fund will change dramatically. Otherwise, the turnover in the fund is quite low. I think uh, the turnover in the fund is less than 25%, 25% a year. Um, yeah, it's, it's very low. Magnus, how have you decided to allocate the half a million that our community member has put or entrusted to your care to invest offshore? Well, I'm using the funds that we've been using at Rentas for quite some time, and those are mostly driven by momentum and tech. If you look at the Franklin U.S. Opportunities Fund, that's a superb fund that has delivered almost as good as pitch, but we've been doing 25% per year for about seven years on that fund now. And that's a typical U.S.-focused, and it's, it's loaded with Amazon, Visa, Alphabet, NVIDIA, etc. All the all the well-known brand names that you would expect. And then we have, um, you know, our old friend Anthony Ginsberg. He's got a, a tech mega trend, which is even more focused on the tech mega trends. Um, and smaller companies, not that well-known in South Africa, but that, that fund is a, a very, very cheap ETF. You just buy it, and, and Anthony and his team will do the asset allocation. And then lastly, we're also using the Brenters Global Equity Fund, which is a global ETF fund, a very cheap one. It's uh, uh, also run by Glenn Owen out of Momentum in London. And those are the funds that have been working for us. And until that cycle ends, that's the funds that we will be using. My job, as will, will be Pitts, and Peter's anticipating a run in the small and the mid-cap stocks, and he's been proven that there's value to be had. And, um, you know, I, I still think that um, there's, there's some 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 run left in the tech, the, the tech stocks of dominate. It's something that we don't have in South Africa. I mean, the global tech market, you know, is now, what, 23%, 26% of the U.S. market, and and uh, you have to be in those in, in that space. If you look at what Tesla has done in the last month, for instance, I mean, from six rand, uh, six dollars, six hundred fifty dollars a year ago, it's now twelve hundred dollars. I mean, that's just phenomenal by our local boyki. And you know, uh, a lot of our clients have done extremely well out of Tesla. The big trick comes to when you make those calls. When is there a what will the impact be of increased U.S. interest rates? Will it hit the tech stocks? Will it affect emerging markets? And then, of course, we have the big, big variable, which is the currency. And that, of course, is the mugs game most of the time. And, you know, we try and make, we take cognizance of the, of the currency, and it can work for you, and it can work against you. But the cycles are even big, and, and that's when we will try and make calls on on. on when we allocate money in or out of that particular fund. Have you allocated it all now at, uh, what's it, 15, 30, 15, 40 at that level, or are you holding back a little? I think I've gone boots in all. We, we took the money out uh, on Friday. We purchased the, the units. I haven't got confirmation, but it's around about current levels, 15, 20, 15, 30. And, you know, again, I'm a very bad market timer. Over 30 years, I've learned I'm not a great market timer the little bit of success I've had in, in markets has been identifying trends developing in the markets and then allocating to fund managers who are good in those trends. So I'm more a trend watcher than a market timer. I've given up on market timing a long time ago. And since then, my performance has been much, much better for myself and for my close family who now love me because I don't do market timing anymore. <laughs> Magnus Haystek, Pete Fulion, uh, well, best of luck to both of you. It'll be, it's going to be fascinating to see uh, who is going to emerge uh, the, the victor over five years. But uh, before we close off, Pete, at around 15, 20 uh, Rand dollar, is this a level that if you were managing the offshore component, would you be investing all of it now or staggering it? So, so I do manage a fund called the Counterpoint Worldwide Flexible Fund, which invests 
can invest anywhere in the world uh, and has about 54% of its assets in South Africa. And I'm actually allocating a little bit more towards South Africa right now. Uh, but as far as the RAND is concerned, when you're buying offshore yeah, so I'm, I'm bringing, I'm bringing money back from offshore. Bringing money, I'm bringing back, money back, back from offshore into, into South Africa, yeah. So that would suggest you think, you think that, it's, uh, that the RAND is a little, a little excessively weak? Yes, I think so, yeah. So if you were managing it, you would have waited a little while before investing offshore? Look, I, I have to say that I agree with Magnus on the, the market timing aspect of things. Um, I, I think it's hard to do, um, uh, and it's almost impossible to do consistently well. Uh, so that's a very hard thing. But all that we do in, in, in that fund, the flexible fund, is that we have what we think is a fair value calculation of the RAND, which is based on inflation differentials. And right now at fifteen twenty, the rand is pulled far away again from that fair value, and that's that's what we use as a trigger to allocate towards the rand. Whether it's going to be right in the short term or not is uh, who knows. I don't know. Welcome to the Power Pals podcast series, brought to you by Standard Bank. We're on to episode six of the Power Pulse uh, series and uh, hosting today is Kevin Semwagarere, uh, who's the corporate venturing lead to the Power Pulse platform, of course, from Standard Bank. Last time we spoke, Kevin, it was both you and Dirosh were with us, we looked at the common pitfalls in implementing solar projects for businesses. Today we're going to be looking at another area, which is residential and you've got a couple of suppliers who are we're going to be talking to in just a moment. Nafisa Farid, who's the CEO of Powerful Less, and uh, Nick Roach, who's the Chief Product Officer at Rubicon. Uh, I presume that they are uh, they went through all the the processes to be able to uh, first of all get onto PowerPulse and uh, and to be sharing the platform uh, with you here. Correct, Alec. So. As was mentioned in previous episodes regarding the commercial and industrial client segments that we are currently addressing with the Power Pulse offering, um, we definitely vet all our trusted suppliers who we introduce to clients. So similarly in the residential space, in terms of the two that you've mentioned, they have definitely gone through extensive vetting and we've made sure um, that given you know all the dynamics we have in the residential solar market, with the various fly-by-nights uh, providers that are out there, that they meet the test um, in order for us to have the confidence to introduce them to our clients as they seek residential uh, solutions um, regarding their homes. So you can rest assured that any supplier uh, that as a client you meet through the Power Pulse process has definitely gone through the right checks and balances. Is it still a little bit like the Wild West? Often one sees that with new areas. In other words, do you have to be very cautious about uh, the supplier in solar that you would be using? I mean, when it comes to sourcing reliable power for your home, at the end of the day, that's a place you reside in all the time. You wouldn't like to be in a situation where your home, in essence, is put at risk, right? Uh, power is essential for everyone's daily needs. So with regards to your question about it being the Wild West, I think there's a big business opportunity given the power, you know, challenges that we are experiencing in our country. Um, so various suppliers have definitely entered the market from all kinds of directions and are taking advantage of the opportunity regarding uh, residential or homeowners looking for alternative uh, power supply for their homes. So there are some fly-by-nights who are creating, I think, a Wild West side of the market. But at the same time, there are those suppliers such as the two we have with us today who are definitely uh, well vetted, who have the right uh, qualifications in place and licensings and memberships in place, who you can trust uh, to come to your home and give you the right solution so that you don't find yourself in a sticky situation given the Wild West part of the market that does exist. So how mature is the South African market now? Obviously, it's not fully mature, as you mentioned earlier. We are, it is new and you would have a lot of opportunists who've come in. But where, if you were to look on it on a, on a scale of zero to 10, 10 being fully mature, where are we? It's very difficult to say exactly where on a scale of zero to 10. Um, if I was to give it a personal opinion, um, I would say we're probably at a five, just touching a six. And the reason why is similar to how, you know, we've addressed other segments regarding businesses in the commercial and industrial sector. 
um, there's a lot of there are a lot of moving factors um, that are in their infancy, such as, for example, how mature the technology is, how available are solar panels, what is the price point, and and essentially who are the qualified suppliers or solution providers in that particular space. So when it comes to residential, um, similarly regarding other sectors such as commercial and industrial. Uh, the economics need to make sense for the homeowner. Affordability definitely, uh, I think, is still a key issue to the maturity of this market. But I think, you know, as we see demand for alternative means of energy around the world, we're starting to see much more participants entering the country from a manufacturing perspective as, as OEMs, but also from a solution provider perspective as installers and other facilitators who are who are in the market. So hopefully over time, we will see this market mature even more as once again, the supply and demand factors start to make much more sense uh, for the homeowner. So the whole uh, business model of PowerPulse is that you go out and vet the suppliers, make sure that these are, these are organizations that Standard Bank says, I give you the stamp of approval, and clearly uh, your clients then are not going to end up with fly-by-nights or, or, or with problematic suppliers. But how do you sort them out? How What kind of a process do you go through to make sure that you don't have the fly-by-nuts? So it's it's quite a, a lengthy process, uh, which I think can take a long time to unpack, but we look for the essentials. Um, you know, first of all, track record. Uh, do these suppliers or entities have the right track record in terms of what is heard about them in the market, what we hear um, from various participants in the market about the services they've provided? Secondly, do they have the right um, certifications in place, given that this is a very technical process where your home is going to be electrified? You don't want any sort of Tom, Dick and Harry, for lack of better words, you know, touching your your electrification system and having your home catch fire. So we check on those particular certifications. And then at the same time, we take them through sort of our what we call due diligence process, where we look at various legal aspects um, and operating risk aspects in order to eventually have confidence that this is a supplier that we can uh, introduce to clients. And then we go further to contract them. So we have master service agreements to onboard them um, into our list of accredited providers um, as, as an institution. But at the same time, regarding the PowerPal solution specifically, we have a service level agreement which we put forward to them, which governs how we introduce them to clients and how we make sure that the client journey at all times is in the best hands. So from a legal and, let's say, execution perspective, that is how we try to mitigate against some of the risks and therefore have the confidence, given that process that I've outlined, to put them forward to clients that need their services. Nafisa Farid is the Chief Executive of Power for Less. Uh, Nafisa, maybe if you could pick it up here, what should prospective buyers be looking for in a solar power installer? In other words, uh, when they come and talk to you and they ask you uh, the right questions, uh, what are those questions that they should be asking everybody to have a fair judgment? My my um, suggestion would be that they apply a five-point compliance checklist. And part of those five points is, number one, as Kevin mentioned, track record. Um, you do not want to be that individual's guinea pig when you're installing a PV solution, either in your home or your business. So track, re- track record basically gives you an idea of the performance of that business, how long they've been established, and what their name is in the industry. The second thing is contactable references. That's very important because that gives you an indication of how that company has engaged with um, provi- with clients, um, the service that they've delivered. And it also gives you an indication of how they've maintained that relationship post once the solution has been delivered. Accreditations is very important, um, especially in the power industry. When you are in the power industry, I mean, the minimum um, expectation I would have is that the company is registered with the ECA. Um, Personally, my uh, experience with the ECA, they um, police um, companies very, very well, um, and they help individuals that are in this industry to accredit themselves and educate themselves further. it's important that anyone that is doing the wiring, especially installing PV in your home, can provide you with a valid COC. Um, that is a non-negotiable. Um, 
You, you're giving um, us a few uh, a few anagrams there that you got to maybe just unpack for us. ECA and COC. So, what what do they so say? So ECA is the Electrical Contractors Association, and COC is Certificate of Compliance. Um, another thing that I would suggest is. You know, you have to have a service provider that has the ability to listen and understand. And I think that is a problem in this industry where um, when a client is looking for PV, they are given a host of options without an individual actually understanding what is the generation requirements that the client has. So it's very important for the service provider to understand, to audit um, and, and, and to audit the client's um, home as well as audit their generation requirements and then advise them on what is and what is not possible. PowerPulse by Standard Bank is an end-to-end online solution built to match businesses with trusted suppliers and deliver the right technical, legal and funding solutions. For more details, email us at powerpulse at standardbank.co.za. Well, thanks for being with us this evening. We'll be back again, same time, same place tomorrow. Please join us then. Until then, from me, Alec Hogg, and the other members of the Biz News team, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.